Hi, I'm James Wedmore, host of the Mind Your Business podcast, and I've built an eight-figure year company selling digital products around my knowledge and expertise. In fact, this is what I've been doing in multiple niches for the past 15 years. And if you've ever wanted to do the same, or maybe you're trying, but you can't seem to get any traction, here's how I can help. As you can guess, you need an audience if you want to sell your stuff, right? But what if I told you that you don't need a big audience. You don't need millions of followers to get started. In fact, we see that it's with just your first 100 leads where you really start getting some momentum. I mean, think about it. Imagine that you're on the stage of a room filled with just 100 people in that audience right now. That's a lot of people. You don't think that a few of them would walk up to you after your talk and ask, hey, how can I keep working with you? Of course they would. And that's why I created your first 100 leads. It's a 14-video step-by-step training mini course that walks you through exactly how to get your first 100 leads fast. And the feedback and results from this free program have been amazing. Diane Shepard said, this is one of the best trainings I've ever taken. Jake Curry said, We have had 753 people sign up for this free training. Are you kidding me? Dan Netting said, I'm currently going through the first 100 leads training, and James, I gotta say, it's brilliant. This training is A to Z complete, and the best part is it's absolutely free. To register, simply click the link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks so much, and I'll see you there. I worked the phones for nine months uh, before I became a revenue agent. which is which is where our story really picks up. Um, and mm-hmm. I was a, I was a revenue agent for about five and a half years. I was in the small business self-employed division. Um, I audited probably about a hundred companies. Um, and uh, yeah, I learned a lot. It was quite an experience. Welcome back to the Ambitious Bookkeeper podcast. You are in for a treat today. I have Mr. Andrew Campbell of Campbell Tax and Consulting here today to talk to us about how to ensure your clients have audit-proof books, the best and worst systems to use when it comes to an audit, and your chances of audit. There's so many good golden nuggets in this episode. I'm actually going to have my clients listen to it, and I think you should too. So if you're ready, let's jump in. Thank you for coming on. I've introduced you already in the intro, but I would love to have you introduce yourself and give everyone here a little bit of background on, um, on you, like where you got your start in accounting and where you ended up, where you're at right now. Yeah. Um, so actually I, well, I, uh, I lived out in Washington, DC. Well, technically I lived in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and I went to grad school. My undergraduate degree is actually in history. Um, and at some point I realized I wasn't really interested in history anymore. Uh, and so I looked at switching to business or accounting or whatever. And I was so far along in my degree that it was simpler to just finish in history and go get a master's degree in in business. So that's what I ended up doing. I got a master's in accounting, um, out at the George Washington university out in DC. Um, I'm in Seattle now, so I keep saying out in D.C. It's the other side of the world for me. Um, But anyhow, um, while I was there, uh, in fact, before I had even started, before I had even finished my first accounting class, 
Um, I put a resume in with account temps. Um, I believe originally just to get access to like, you know, some PDF that they were dangling. Um, and I, I put it in at about mm, four in the morning. Cause I was, you know, goofing around on the internet. Cause I was a young graduate student back in those days. Um, and at nine or excuse me, at 8am they contacted me and said, we have a position for you. We'd like you to, you know, come in and anyway. Um, so that's where I got my first bookkeeping position. Um, having basically no experience or education, uh, in the field, but, uh, but I got to keep some QuickBooks for a, a not-for-profit for a couple of years. And that was fun and pretty interesting. Uh, I went to graduate school there and um, I interned with and then was hired by uh, PwC. I guess it was PricewaterhouseCoopers back in those days, but now it's just PwC. Um, and uh, that did not last very long. Uh, interning was interesting. I interned out in Virginia, uh, but when I got hired, I wanted to come home. And so I came home to Seattle, uh, and that turned out to be a bit of a bait and switch, uh, that I brought on myself, uh, cause the Seattle office was very different. So I was there for like nine months before I washed out. Um, and then I, I bummed around a little bit. I did some temping. I worked, uh, one season for a small public accounting firm. And then where the story gets really interesting is I answered a cattle call for um, telephone representatives at the IRS. This was 2008. uh, And the job market in Seattle is always really tough because it's such a beautiful place where people want to live. But in 2008, it was really bad. Um, And so I was getting a little desperate for anything. And so anyway, um, I got a job working the phones at the IRS, um, which I figured I could parlay into a, a more substantial uh, career there at the IRS, which I did. I worked the phones for nine months uh, before I became a revenue agent, uh, which is which where our story really picks up. Um, and mm-hmm. I, was a, I was a revenue agent for about five and a half years. I was in the small business self-employed division. Um, I audited probably about a hundred companies. Um, and, uh, yeah, I learned a lot. It was quite an experience. Um, and I do, I, I do enjoy that. I have that little extra, uh, little extra bonus of having been on the phones for the first several months. So there's a little, a little extra perspective that I have there. Yeah. Cause you were, I'm guessing fielding calls from taxpayers, like business, or was it individual or everything? Um, it was kind of everything. It was mostly individuals. Um, yeah, I, I gather they don't do this anymore. Now, I think if they hire you for the phones, like they don't give you the complete training. But when I went in, like we did three months of, you know, 40 hours a week in the classroom of just training to learn how to be people who answer the phone at the IRS. Um, I, I don't know that they still do it that way, but that's how they did it when I was there. And it was really, it was really interesting to get to learn that much about the kind of the inner workings of how the, the IRS keeps track of you and thinks of you and, and whatnot. They run the incredibly old computer systems. So (laughs) 
that uh, sometimes that explains a lot when you think, how can it possibly work this way? And you say, well, it's because that's how it worked in 1968 when they set this system up. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, um, I know a lot of bookkeepers and accountants want to be able to really serve their clients. If you're listening to this podcast, I hope that's you, um, (laughs) because I'm all about serving our clients to the highest potential. And one of those ways is to be able to offer them insight on like what they should be avoiding pitfalls that they could avoid with the IRS. Even though you're a bookkeeper, you're the first line of defense for helping these clients stay in compliance. Right. And I know there's a lot of talk in our industry about like getting away from compliance work and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think it's ever going to go away. And, uh, so I wanted to obviously bring you on (laughs) to talk about like, if any insights that you can offer, like if, if you, um, had like five bullet points or whatever it ends up being that you can offer a bookkeeper that, you know, like if they could do these five things, then it would keep your clients out of trouble, um, would be super valuable or any kind of insight of like the things that you've seen, the systems that you've, you know, seen that were the worst and, um, things that we can do differently so that our clients stay in good standing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So, um, Well, uh, I will talk first about the system that is the best, um, which will uh, uh, astonish most people, I think. Uh, And this is the best in terms of who sails through an IRS audit and who doesn't. Um, Mm. Who sails through an IRS audit? Some of the shortest cases I ever worked were people who they had a manila uh, envelope that had the name of the Schedule C category. So there was an envelope called supplies and there was an envelope called office expenses and there was an envelope called insurance or whatever. Um, All those Schedule C categories. And when they had an expense, they would get the receipt and they would put the receipt in the envelope And they would write the amount on the front of the envelope. And then at the end of the year, they would total up the totals that were written on the front of the envelope. And then they would transfer that number onto their Schedule C. And then they would file their taxes. Uh, And the, the thing about that system is it's very easy for even a small business owner who has no accounting training to comprehend. And as a result, they basically never screw it up. it's, you know, it's just this lockstep progression from source documents to tax return. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the most important thing for bookkeepers to know, which is the sort of the basic logic of an audit. If you've never done any auditing, um, you know, you probably don't think about it because certainly clients don't think about it and vendors don't think about it. And it's just something that seems like the whole industry doesn't talk about. Um, and I used to have to like break this down for taxpayers all the time, right? Is I would say, okay, so you have these numbers that you have listed on your tax return. Now, what I'm interested to know is where did these numbers come from, right? Now, mm-hmm. presumably they are related to your profit and loss statement. 
However, I can't tie them to your profit and loss statement because you didn't lock your year. <laughs> this yeah. is like eight out of 10 cases, nine out of 10 cases, right? So the, I, you can map the accounts to the, you know, to the line items on the tax return, but if they've been changed since the tax return was filed, guess what? We're going to throw your books out and we're going to start over because that's all we can do, right? Yeah. If we can't. That's a really important point, point, important point to make is that like once you, once the auditor discovers that the numbers are not reliable, you've been opened a can of worms, correct? Absolutely. And this actually, I, I learned this lesson in my very first bookkeeping job uh, uh, when I was still in graduate school, where I thought that I was kicking butt, right? I went into the QuickBooks. I found this error that had been made like three years ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can fix this. I know what this is supposed to be now. <laughs> yes, I see you cringing. That's right. I know this isn't going to be on video, but we have, yes. we have video. And, <laughs> but yes, very pained expression. That's right. But you know, what, what could I do? I was 24 years old or something. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing a good thing, as I think a lot of business owners and even a lot of bookkeepers think they are doing, is they, they find some error from last year and they think, ooh, I can fix this. But what you don't realize is that you're actually wrecking the integrity of the books. Yeah. Uh, Even though they weren't correct, that is what was on the tax return. And this is a really common issue that um, we come up with a lot. We get a new client. They haven't filed um, their current year taxes, but they filed last year. uh, But their bank hasn't been reconciled in three years. (laughs) So then you're like, well, where do I start the cleanup? And that's when it requires a conversation with the client, right? about what they're willing to, you know, what they're willing to do. Are they willing to amend prior years? Because that's going to have to happen if we go back further than the year you file taxes, but that needs to happen to be able to reconcile current years. So you have to, it's always up to the client. You can't make that decision for them, but they need to understand the ramifications of either decision, right? We'll be back after a quick break. This episode of the Ambitious Bookkeeper podcast is sponsored by my brand new free training, The Ultimate Guide to Creating a Profitable Bookkeeping Business. In just one hour, you will learn three keys to creating and launching a profitable bookkeeping business. We will map out your path to creating a bookkeeping or accounting business that keeps you in control of your time, priorities, and expertise. From someone who built a six-figure firm on part-time hours. That's right. You can stay in control of your time, keep family as your priority, and serve your clients well. It just takes a little strategy up front, and I'm going to help you with that during this free training. So head over to the show notes to sign up now for the next training and find out how you can choose the work you do, kick imposter syndrome to the curb, use tech to be super efficient, which all leads to a profitable business. Just head on over to ambitiousbookkeeper.com training. And I will see you there. Yes, absolutely. And that actually does make me just, I w- didn't think I was going to bring this up, but 
uh, now that you mention it, um, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is no duty to amend. Um, and I don't think that's AICPA approved. Like I think the AICPA's policy is that you should amend your returns if you know they're yeah. wrong. But yeah. from the IRS's perspective, you're not required to do that, right? If when you signed the return, when you originally filed it, if you thought it was correct, if you signed it in good faith, that's all you're required to do. If you subsequently mm -hmm. find out that it was wrong, you can either it's amend it. It's up to it. your personal ethics there. <laughs> that's right. Well, your personal ethics and, and just sort of how much risk you can tolerate. Yeah. Um, you know, it, for some people, they will not sleep if they know that there's, you know, $25,000 adjustment that the IRS could find um, and then slap a 20% penalty on that and then start calculating interest from the time the return was due. Uh, yeah. Like there are people who just, they will not sleep unless that is fixed. Um, and, you know, anyway, other times it's, yeah. it is worth the risk for folks. I mean, sometimes it costs more to pay your accountant than to, <laughs> than to, to, you know, the, the tax the, due yeah. is less than what it would cost to pay your accountant. But anyway, um, I just think that's a, that's a little known fact. I find people assume there is a duty to amend and there isn't. Yeah. That's um, good to know. I mean, I always leave it up to the client. Like it's really up to them. Like you said, like, here's, here's what could happen if you get audited for that year and we didn't amend it, then you might end up with penalties and interest. <laughs> but, or we, you know, and you have to pay for the cleanup, right. Um, and help, you know, through the audit and all that kind of stuff. So there's a huge financial risk there in all areas, but, um, or we can just start with a clean slate and know that from this point forward, your books are going to be correct because you're working with me. <laughs> that's the, that's the side I tend to err on. Um, me too. <laughs> is let's just put a stake in the ground and we'll just do it correctly from here. Um, but anyway, it you know, depends on the client. Like I say, some of them can't, can't handle that. Can't stand it. Yeah. Uh, so back to what sales you through the IRS audit. Um, yes. So back to, well, and I, so I just wanted to, to um, touch again on working through the logic of the audit yeah. and that's the first sort of stumbling block is when you can't tie the return to the books. And that is because you didn't lock the, the dates. Um, you didn't lock the end of the year. Um, so bookkeepers, if you're listening for crying out loud, please, please, please lock the end of the year. At, at I least... lock every month because oh, I awesome. don't want I don't want it. That's part of our month end process. Once we deliver those financial reports to the client, we lock them. I mean, if no there's changes that need to be made that we discover later, at least we get an alert and we have to physically like go unlock the period and be very intentional about that adjustment. <laughs> absolutely. That, that is absolutely the way to do it. Um, Cause that's sort of the danger of computerized bookkeeping, right? Is that by default, you know, it, it sort of doesn't, it doesn't leave a trail uh, in the way that, you know, when I, so after I left the IRS, I split time between running my practice and teaching college. Um, and so, as I used to tell my accounting students, like, you should do your accounting in pen, because mm -hmm. I don't want to see any erase marks. That's not how we do it, right? If you make a mistake, you can either cross it out if it hasn't posted, 
or if it has posted, you got to put in a journal entry to fix it. Avoid it. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. <laughs> Don't delete yeah. the transactions. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. And, and <laughs> Don't get me started on that. <laughs> and you made an important point earlier um, about kind of, even though it's incorrect, and even though you know it's incorrect, you have to leave it incorrect so that it will match the Schedule C. And I mean, if you want to do sort of one of the options that I lay out for my clients where, you know, we sort of know that they have an adjustment or whatever is if they get an audit letter, like we'll have that ready to go. Because one of the best things when, when you're getting audited, the goal is for it to be as short as possible. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that you can make that happen is when the auditor gets there, uh, one of the things I think they're required to ask you is, are you aware of any errors on your return? And you can say, well, yes, I am. As a matter of fact, here's a $10,000 adjustment uh, that you can go ahead and have for absolutely no work, uh, to which the auditor says, oh, terrific. I found a $10,000 adjustment uh, and I'm going to close this case in you know 60 days and my manager is going to be thrilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's, that's sort of one strategy you could pursue, right? Is, is have those adjustments ready to go if you know about them. You may or may not want to correct them yourself. But anyhow, um, so you tie, the, you tie the return, uh, you tie the return to the books, right? Then this is the part that most people are able to cope with, right? Is that those numbers on your P&L We've gotten from the return to the PL at this point. And now those numbers on the PL are summary numbers. Right? And those summary numbers on the PL are the summary of a list of transactions that have happened in the relevant general ledger account. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I need to be able to go back through that ledger, right? If I'm auditing, well, meals and entertainment, because that's the one that always gets audited, right? Uh, I'm auditing your Take notes, everyone. I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is there any of those ones that, you know, seem fun? Be abused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nobody ever gets their rent audited unless they're renting to themselves or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, so, we're, you know, we're looking through the meals and entertainment. And what we should be able to do is look at all the items on that list, add them up, and get the total that's on the PL. That part of it, software is really good at because it's just math. Um, so that part usually goes pretty smoothly. And then the, the last step, which is the step that I would say, if we're rounding, 10 out of 10 taxpayers had a terrible problem with, uh, which is for each of those line items, there should be a source document. Yep. In the case of meals and entertainment, it should be a you know a receipt. And uh, if we're if we're talking realistically, uh, on the back of that receipt should be the name of the client that you were with, what you talked about at that meeting, right? The business purpose, and because um, essentially what you have to do is you have to tie it to revenue. Um, and let me tell you, I audited a place um, when I was at the IRS. They had, I think, 
$66,000 worth of meals and entertainment expenses. Oh and I just God. thought, sure you what do. Was, what was their revenue? Uh, well, remember? their revenue was like $4 million or something. <laughs> oh, geez. And, and the point is, is that they, I don't think I found an adjustment there at all. I may have found one because I, I think maybe there was a, a clerical error somewhere, but I just thought, oh, they're, they're going to get killed. There's no way they can, they can substantiate all of this, but they knew what they were doing and they could. Um, yeah. And they, you know, they very specifically said, you know, okay, so I spent, you know, $2,500 whining and dining this client, but that client does a quarter of a million dollars a year with a business with us. And I have the documentation that shows that. And so, okay, fine. I, I guess I have to allow it then. Um, so what but, you're saying is you would pull in the meals and entertainment situation, you would pull one of those receipts and see, okay, they said they taught, they took out this client. Now I'm going to go look at the sales transactions and see their customer list and make sure that client's on there. Yeah. Is that a real client? Does that client really produce revenue? Uh, cause you know, as an IRS agent, sometimes you'll see things like, oh, I remember one time I, I was auditing someone's, uh, uh meals and entertainment expense. Uh, and I saw this huge line item, way bigger than the typical uh, uh, item that was on their list, you know, most of it's Starbucks coffees or whatever. And then there's like a $500 dinner at a fancy restaurant or whatever. And I was like, this was a client meal. And they were like, oh, yes, definitely. And because of course, I had these records, I was like, was your wife pissed that you took a client out on her birthday? <laughs> she she got over anyway um it was like nice try buddy um oh that's good yeah yeah don't try to get cute with me or yeah you would see people Anyway, I got, I got lots of. So, do you think crazy stories about people stuff? Yeah, do you think is that part of your training at the IRS is to be super skeptical and to be able to make those connections because that takes a certain level of problem solving or just like awareness of like, oh, I'm going to look at this line item and then, oh, I have their personal tax return right here. I know this is the same day as his wife's birthday. Like, how did you make that connection? And is that part of your training? Uh, it, it is, and it's part of the culture as well. It's, it's one of the reasons I really wanted to leave that job. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as my federal pension vested, <laughs> I was looking for the door, um, is because it, it makes you really paranoid. Um, <laughs> like it, and More it, so than just a regular accounting job, because we all have that worse. issue. <laughs> well, yes. But as, as I used to say when I was a, an IRS agent, I was like, so basically my job is I get lied to for a living. And because <laughs> nobody feels bad about, you know, BSing their IRS agent, the IRS agent is out to get them, right? So uh, if you tell them less than the whole truth, you can do so without a guilty conscience. Uh, but yeah, so absolutely, we're, we're trained to look for those sorts of things. And, and, and it's just very much in the air, um, yeah. the IRS, that you just assume that everyone is lying to you about everything. Or... <laughs> I guess my... that's pretty much, yeah, that's the audit, audit culture, really. Yes, exactly. That's one of my catchphrases when I was there. 
was, uh, and I believe you, but I'm going <laughs> to need to go ahead and see that document. Like, I can't yeah. put it in my case file that I believed him, right? My manager is not going to go for that. Uh, I'm going to need you to produce the paperwork. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, because people used to put a lot of energy into telling me their story and trying to make it believable and you know you're like hold up before you waste your breath like I don't care if I believe you or not <laughs> yeah it's not really relevant doesn't lie. exactly <laughs> so I just said and I believe you but yeah so or the there was one yeah. time a, a guy left me a voicemail and he was just like so strung out about oh my god I'm gonna I'm gonna take a ferry and I'm gonna come and I'm gonna I'm going to deliver these documents to you personally. It was a delinquent return that he was giving me. And I called him back and I was like, hey, man, don't worry about it. The penalty is the same whether you're a day late or you're a month late. So, you know, as long as you get them into me this month, that's it's really. But, you know, anyway, people think you're emotionally invested in the in it because they are. Yeah. Like, I told you it was due yesterday. Whether you, you don't have to get it to me today. Don't take a ferry. Just put it in the mail. Yeah. Yeah. So those three things, you've got to tie it to the return and then you have to tie your each general ledger transaction should, should summarize to that summary on the return. And then the third one is each line item should have a source document, which is a receipt or an invoice with a clear business purpose. <laughs> yes. And, and of course the, the, the more sort of susceptible to abuse that line item is, um, the, the more careful you, you have to be about having those documents. And this is a place where I, I sort of don't know what the answer is um, because the sort of, it's the least sexy, most just admin horrible work of managing source documents, of organizing them. And it is just the absolutely critical foundation to having a set of books that the IRS is not going to make you reconstruct. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just, there, I have not found a good solution for it um, of a, a really efficient way to manage source documents. So to, for bookkeepers, I think the best thing that you can do is just educate your clients about it mm -hmm. um, and about how, this sort of one of the uh, things I'm really tuned into in the industry is how incredibly vague the term bookkeeping is. And so people mm -hmm. think, well, I have a bookkeeper. So I have everything Recovered. there is to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so being real clear about, so I'm your bookkeeper and I'm going to, you know, record these transactions and I'm going to, you know, produce your financial statements every month and send you the report and I'm going to do what I do. But if the IRS comes to the door, they're only going to care about that if it is backed up by source documents. And I'm not going to do that for you because it's really not efficient for me to do that. You know, if you have them, that's enough. I don't need to have them. That just adds a transaction that doesn't need to really occur. Um, but just communicating to them how essential that is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And- that's a conversation we can, we have with our clients almost every month. And this is where like a, a lot of bookkeepers get hung up of like, well, am I supposed to be gathering all that stuff or do I need to? And, and the answer is yes and no. <laughs> it yeah. depends with everything in accounting. It really depends on what you're willing to do and how often you want to be bothering your clients. For me, I give my clients an option and I say, okay, we can go one of two ways. Like if you need the accountability and you want to have audit proof books, I will bug you every month for all of your missing receipts. We put everything in HubDoc, whatever you have, you put in there. And then whatever's missing, we don't reconcile your bank account until it's in there. And I will bug you until I get it. The other option is I just enter everything and I go on your word and you're responsible for managing your paperwork. (laughs) So those are the options we give our clients. Most of them get 98% of their documents to us. Um, I say like, I don't care about the recurring subscription fee that is the same every month, as long as you have at least one email with a confirmation in there. (laughs) Um, if it's easy enough for you, like if in an audit you have, you could log in and pull the history of that account, whatever, that's cool. But anything that's a different price every month or a meal or fuel or any of that, like I need the documentation. So one thing that came up with one of my clients recently is um, she had a meal expense and it was probably like $45, but it was either during traveling or with a client or something, but she lost the receipt. She didn't have it anymore. So I did as this is what I suggested. And I don't even know if this is right, because this is what we did in corporate for our, uh, our sales reps were required to submit all their receipts for all of their, you know, their meals. And if they didn't have the receipt, they had to fill out like a missing receipt form basically that gave all the information in as much detail as possible. And so I did the same thing with the client. I said, just put on a piece of paper, the amount, the date, what it was for, where it was at. And like, we'll see, (laughs) like, we'll put it in there, but I'm still not guaranteeing it, but at least you can, you know, absolutely effort (laughs) contemporaneous documentation. That's, that's the key, right? Is, and it, it, you know, it's sort of one of the crazy things about being an IRS agent is how much authority and how much discretion you have. And so, I mean, obviously I can't speak for every IRS agent, but I think the sort of the, the forces that are upon you when you're an IRS agent, you're under a lot of pressure to close your cases efficiently, quickly. And so I remember when I was in training, um, I did like I was trained to in public accounting and I sampled and I, you know, I was tying things out and I, you know, I had this just like gorgeous set of work papers that I had produced over the course of three days that I was out at the client site. And I went and I like reviewed it with my manager and my manager said, when did you know that this case was a no change? Oh. I was like, oh, halfway through the first day. Obviously, their, their stuff was all in order, uh, you know, and that's why I was able to, you know, conduct this proper audit of it. Uh, and he said, yeah, so when you know it's a no change, it's time to shut it down. Um, and so uh, one thing, and this, I don't know how, how, I guess this would be at least relevant if you're supporting uh, somebody who's actually going through an audit is that 
nobody ever directly bluffs the IRS. Um, there's a lot of lying about things that can't be verified. Um, but as I used to say when I was an agent, the more you provide me, the less I look at. Yeah. And so when you can show me, uh, you know, a, a folder full of receipts that are matchable to all these, you know, and, and they have a note on them about who you were with and what you talked about. If some of the receipts in there are not original receipts, but are contemporaneously prepared, you know, just sheets of paper that say on this date, I went with this client and I spent this much money and I can tie that amount to your credit card statement. Sure. Yeah, obviously this is all in order. Um, you know, you don't, you don't kind of negotiate at the line item level because what, what you're really looking for is when you say, so I, you know, I'm going to audit your meals and entertainment and they just hand you their credit card statement and say, American Express has already categorized it for me. <laughs> right. That's a fight I always have to have. I don't care about the fucking statement. Yeah. <laughs> I have to bleep well, this one. <laughs> Exactly. And, and this is what I'd have to explain to people. I was like, so in order to deduct something on your return, you have to prove two things, proof of payment, which you have done and proof of deductibility, which you have not done. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's the kind of, that's the thing to tune into, right. Is, yeah. is this the sort of thing that a person might spend money on, right? So I remember Personally, one yeah. person, they didn't have their receipts or whatever, or they couldn't find them or something. And they were a appliance sales place. And they had a $40,000 line item for like money that they had spent at Stove's World or something. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to audit that because- yeah a person wouldn't spend $40,000 at Stove's World. But then if that same person, you know, hands you a credit card statement that says $300 Costco, right? Or Fred Meyer or whatever. Like I've spent $300 at Costco before on mm -hmm. things that weren't for business. So if you want to deduct it for business purposes, you better be able to show me what you bought at Costco. Um, and, and, and again, you're looking for things systemic there, right? Because the, the easiest thing to audit is when you say, and where are your receipts? And they say, oh, I had to have receipts. I didn't know about that. Um, maybe you can just go off my credit card statement. You say, well, no, unfortunately I can't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was always an argument, um, in corporate and it's still, it's not like an argument with clients. It's definitely an educational point though, is like, uh, Amex doesn't know why you went to a restaurant. <laughs> yes. right. Amex doesn't have any details. I know they have the flight information, but that doesn't give you the actual details of why you took that flight. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'd see people who did a really good job is, uh, you know, swipe a brochure from that conference that you were at and just stick it in the file. Right. I mean, because if you if you dropped a couple of thousand dollars going to a, a multi-day, you know, CPE event, uh, uh, some kind of conference. That's deductible as yeah. long as you can prove that it was a legitimate business expense. 
And so one way to do that is, you know, I was really there. Here's the swag I got, or here's the, here's the brochure for the thing. And again, of course you could have gotten that from your friend or whatever, but people don't tend to bluff like that when it's the IRS, you don't want to get caught lying to the IRS. And so, um, there's a sort of, there's a strategy there around, around producing a lot of documentation, um, because the IRS sort of can assume that it's probably not fraudulent. Yeah. Too much information is, is better than not enough. Like, um, like for instance, with the conference example, like, well, you should have a conference ticket or an agenda or something, even a confirmation email with that same date range of when you took the flight. (laughs) So just like, keep all of it, (laughs) you know? So, um, yeah. What about if somebody takes a, like, I'm curious of what their strategy for auditing this situation is like, what if there is a legitimate like conference that you take, but you travel in two days early and leave two days after it? Like, is that something that you guys would be aware of and be like, well, that was vacation days. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact sort of tax law doctrine there. Um, cause I think there is a, there is an official way to like apportion that, um, specifically for the flight. Yeah. Um, and maybe hotels or something like, obviously well, like you hotels, can't really, did... cause you can just yeah. do it by what nights were you there for the conference and what nights yeah. were you there. And so that's one of those things that, um, it's really useful if you can give your, your, you know, your, your auditor indications that you're the kind of person who keeps fastidious records um and so that's where something like okay so here's my and here's a little work paper that i cooked up that shows that even though it's just this one line item i backed out the cost of my wife's plane ticket Mm -hmm. and then i allocated the uh, hotel you know, to the three days I was at the conference and then the two days that we spent sightseeing, I backed those out of my, my books because those aren't business expenses. Yeah. Um, and so I used to say there was sort of two types of taxpayers, you know, there was two types of books that I would see. Uh, and it was the people who were way on the ball like that, who were, you know, working really hard to get it right. And then there were the people who were just sort of like, ah, well, I have my credit card statements. Um, And you want to be classed with the first group. Yeah. And and so there's, there's certain indicators like, you know, where you handle the, that kind of a transaction or a good mileage log. If you claim mileage, um, having a good mileage log is a, it was a big one, at least back in my day. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know with the with the new automated apps. I don't know if that's still such a good indicator, um, but yeah, I think it is for certain industries like truckers and stuff. Well, truckers <laughs> and real estate agents are the ones who get audited constantly. So yeah, so this is really helpful for sure. And I think hopefully by list, like I'm, I'm actually going to have my clients listen to this episode too, like as part of their onboarding, like, I think it's a great idea. So if anyone wants to do that as well, so that they can hear firsthand, like 
what does an IRS auditor look like? If you're, especially if you're having trouble with your clients, like keeping paperwork or getting on board with your paperwork policy or the tools that you've provided them. So like, if you provide them access to HubDoc and they're not using it, send them to this episode, like <laughs> let right. them listen to this and see why it's so important. Um, but, and also in figuring out like what types of clients you want to be working with, like, do you, do you want the liability and not necessarily that it would fall back on the bookkeeper, but it would certainly be a headache to have a client that wouldn't comply with these types of things and then come back to you and act like you never tried to help them. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would want to make it real clear. If you're not going to enforce it for them, if they're not interested in having that enforcement, I would make sure and get it real clear in your engagement letter um, mm -hmm. that that is not a service you provide. <laughs> it is not a service that you are providing them and that it is a very important function that they are responsible for. Yeah. You know, not just that you're not going to do it, but that you have advised them that they need to do it. Yeah. Yeah, which is why like the AICPA engagement letters are very thorough about what is the responsibility of the client and what is the responsibility of the accountant. So take some pointers from that. <laughs> yes, I, I will share this one little thing. Um, their website is really terrible about making this clear. And, you know, because I'm an old IRS agent, like I want to be able to cite you know, chapter and verse, this is where this says that this is allowed or whatever. And I went on, I think actually at your recommendation, I went on the AICPA website to try to sign up and they have a category for non-CPAs because I'm not a CPA mm -hmm. uh, to like be a non-CPA associate member or whatever, whatever it's called. Um, but it is very difficult to get a precise definition of like who qualifies and who doesn't qualify. Um, but it turns out that the, and the only reason I was actually able to sign up is because I got halfway through it online and then I couldn't find a citation. And so I gave up and they called me the next day and said, Hey, I saw you were trying to sign up. <laughs> and so anyway, um, but yes, it really is a wealth of resources and you don't have to be a CPA to join the AICPA. Um, so I don't know if people know that, but um, yeah, I know <laughs> that you can definitely join if you're getting an accounting degree or on your path to get a CPA license. So did you ever figure out what the other options are? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember that there's like a, it's like you work in the industry, but you're otherwise not qualified. I think is what they don't want people to do is like to be a CPA and try to get this cheaper yeah. membership yeah. Or, or whatever. Like, if yeah, because if you're a CPA, it's like $500 a year. <laughs> yeah, it's real pricey. Um, and it's, it's, it's not super cheap, uh, uh, you know, even for the, the whatever non-CPA associate membership I have. But, but, um, but you do get access to the wealth of resources. And I do tax. So they have a lot of fantastic uh, resources in the tax section as well. Yes. Um, yeah. So they I haven't have even specific... unpacked it all. Oh, you have it. They have specific tax um, engagement letters for each type of tax return and um, tax organizers. So all the checklists that you need to send your clients that nobody ever actually looks at, <laughs> you end up filling it out for your client, but you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So 
This has been awesome. Is there any other, so, okay. So we talked about how to sail through an audit. What was the best system? So it's an envelope system with physical receipts and my headphones just died. So hopefully there's oh, no. not like a, Oh no, it was just one. Okay, cool. Um, so what well, is that it's the best system. It's just that that is a bulletproof system. Bulletproof. And so if you're okay. going to abandon that system, you want to have a system like you you need to know that you're beating that system right you don't want to abandon what works about that system right so what worked about that system is being able to tick and tie everything <laughs> yes. so if you can come up with a digital alternative for your clients if you're working on the cloud or if you work with local clients and you used to hate that shoebox that they brought in but at least everything was there maybe just work on like setting up the envelopes for them or the file folders for them so that when the shoe box comes, they're all sorted. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Well, and with so, digitization now, you can kind of, you can, you could kind of sort that shoe box for them. Yeah. So what is, what, what are the alternative, like the worst situations you've seen where people have failed the audit miserably do we want to mention software names? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was just ranting about this on Reddit the other day um, about how, and to some extent, I can't blame them because of the, like that's in their DNA, right? Yeah. So once upon a time, there was Quicken and Quicken was for people who wanted to keep a really icy grip on their personal finances. Uh, and so it was for people who were pretty fastidious and detail oriented. And then Quicken spawned QuickBooks, um, which I guess at the time was a good thing for, I think they were catering to that same clientele, people who were really fastidious, but needed yeah. something just a little bit more powerful. Mm -hmm. But then what happened is- And QuickBooks, double entry accounting. Yeah, exactly. Double entry, but what happened then is that QuickBooks became the only game in town. It got incredibly sophisticated and they forgot to send out a memo that QuickBooks is now so powerful and so create, you know, so, so comprehensive that under no circumstances should an amateur attempt to use it. Yes. But because that's not a very I don't think they problem. forgot to send that memo. I think they <laughs> That memo happened internally and they forgot to, yeah, that's not very good marketing, right? They, yeah. they wanted, they I think the marketing to department was like, no, we won't make our sales if we send that memo out. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. And, and so the, the whole kind of ethos uh, behind QuickBooks and, you know, to a lesser extent, the entire small business software industry, um, you know, as it has been dominated by QuickBooks for so long, it is all built on the principle of, I want to build your confidence that you can do this. And therefore I will, no, I don't wanna say never, but I will minimize the number of times that I kick back at you and say, what you're about to do is insane. What you're yeah. about to do is a very bad idea and will mess up your books, right? <laughs> Instead, the I would of, love a pop-up box that said that, honestly, and, what you're about to do is insane. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it's, what, it's what's needed, right? If you're going to have DIY software. You're about to fail an audit. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You are about to wreck your books. Um, 
And, and so what happens is whatever you try to give QuickBooks, QuickBooks will gratefully accept. And then they'll just figure it out on the balance sheet. They'll just pop something on the balance sheet that, that makes that sort of technically allowable, technically makes sense. And then at the end of the year or whenever, your accountant will come in and they will find a dumpster fire on your balance sheet of just chaos and nonsense and things that shouldn't be allowed to happen in an accounting system ever. But here they are. And then you'll have to pay your accountant to fix it. And it's just, it's this whole sort of like abusive cycle um, of bad data going in. And then accountants are sort of trying to fix it. But as we probably all know, if we've ever worked with QuickBooks, like you're putting a bandaid on it. Like you're trying to plug the holes, but it, you know, it's really, anyway, in this rant that I went on the other day uh, on Reddit, where I was talking about like, if I was going to build software, what I would assume is the thing that QuickBooks assumes is that you know exactly what you are doing and that you have controls and procedures in place. So you would never do anything foolish, right? That's what they're assuming. And And that's what it's set up for. Yeah, that is what it's set up for. And there's so many, yeah, there's so many ways to mess it up. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, oh, I agree. That's yeah. how um, that's how Great Plains operates. It assumes people are idiots. Like you cannot delete a transaction. Everything has to be voided. Yeah. So it's still there. So if you make a huge import of a bunch of transactions that were wrong, they will always be there, <laughs> just voided. So it sure. it looks messy when you dig into the details, but at least everything else is correct. You know what I mean? but it is possible to audit. Yes. And that's the thing. That's the thing that happens is that things get deleted and things get changed and there's no record of it. And it looks tidy from a certain perspective, but it's not testable. It can't be audited. Or I mean, I guess there's ways you can go in through the audit log, but Oh, what a nightmare. Even then though, it doesn't give the full details because when something's deleted, you can't then it just says that transaction was deleted, but you don't know what the amount was originally. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Right. And it, yeah, I mean, it just, at, at every turn, it gives me the impression this was not designed by an accountant. No, definitely not. Right? Um, like, yeah. I was giving the example the other day of like, if, if I were to develop my own bookkeeping software for that, you know, market, like if you wanted to create an, a vendor, it would require you to upload a W-9, right? And if you put in an override code, right, would you would have to put in an override code to say, oh, no, 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 I don't have a W-9 for this. It would flag that and it would go on a report so that when you gave it to your accountant, they could run one report that says the following vendors do not have W-9s, right? And then mm-hmm. you say, well, that's amazon.com. So I, as the accountant, I'm going to sign off on that. Uh, yeah, you're, you're allowed to pay, you know, pay we, money without W9. So it's funny because, like, I when I worked in corporate, I kind of hated the system, but now that like I'm seeing like where things can go wrong, it was actually designed very well. Microsoft, it's now Microsoft Dynamics, but it used to be called Great Plains. Yeah, yeah. But um, 
when we created a vendor, if it was missing the EIN number in that field, it would pop up on a report at your end and it would not generate the, the 1099. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, I mean, there it was definitely at least had input from accountants. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's rough out there and it, it's, and I always feel like a crazy person because I try to complain about this to the vendors. Uh, and they're just like, nah, don't worry about that. It's all about advisory these days, you know? And I'm just like, well, that's great. But you, if your books are just like full of holes from an auditor's perspective, and it's and how just, accurate are they to be able to offer advice on anyways? So there's well, that, exactly. that side of things too. Um, but and maybe they're accurate. Maybe they're not. <laughs> there's no way to know. Because Until you get audited. Get <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say something about, oh yeah, about compliance, like going away. Like this is what proves that there will always be some sort of compliance, whether the clients want to pay for it or not, it still needs to be done. So um, like the alternative is hefty IRS fees, audit fees, having to pay me to come back to help you through an audit that you're going to fail anyways. <laughs> so yeah, I would not worry about that. Like, yeah, no software is going to request a, a W9 for you. Right. Cause it's all about ease of use. Yes. And so you still, you know, not, that is not a like core virtue of accounting software. Yeah. <laughs> core virtue. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's systems that have made it easier, but it still requires that knowledge that, that we hold, that we know that that document is required. So like, for instance, Relay Bank, they have their bill pay feature. If you go and try to ACH somebody or send them a check, it, it gives you the option to send them an email and have them fill in their information and check the box that you've received a W9. I, I tell so, you what, shout out to Relay Bank. They are terrific. And I have given them so much feedback. I just so appreciate how much they listen uh, mm -hmm. to, the, to the accountants. Because again, it feels like the software world is more interested in the consumer because there's more of them, mm -hmm. uh, which I get. But um, it's so wonderful to see a vendor that's really tuned in to the needs of the bookkeepers. Yes. Uh, and what makes their life easier. I remember when they rolled out that bill pay or some iteration of that bill pay and they were talking about like, oh, you can request the W-9 information. And I was like, fantastic. And how do you generate a report that has all that information on it? And they were like, is that an important feature? I was like, yes, it is an important feature so that I can upload it into my 1099 software at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unless you're going to- Oh, are they going to build- are they going to build an integration with the like tax 1099 or anything you think? Well, that was, that was my recommendation, right? Yeah. I want to be able to run a, a CSV file out of relay that has all that information on it. And then I want to upload that to track 1099 and file them all in, you know, whatever, half an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And they hadn't built that, but they were like, oh, that's a very good point. And I assume I know nothing about computers, but I assume adding a function to export a CSV file is not super advanced 
Yeah. I mean, they've, they've accomplished that with bank statements. So <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, if you have the data, how yeah. difficult can it be to export it into a CSV file? But yeah, maybe that's naive of me, but. So our, so question then, since I know you're not a QuickBooks person, <laughs> I bet people are now wondering, well, what software should we be using with our clients to make it a little bit bullet more bulletproof, right? And I think the most bulletproof situation you can have is to not let your clients do any of the bookkeeping, <laughs> whatever <laughs> software you choose. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, you um, have to kind and, of meet in the middle there. Yeah. Um, but between... Yes, you should get someone who knows what they are doing, uh, which is the assumption that the software makes. But then also have software that that has a little more uh, a little more in the way of not necessarily protect protections, but at least uh, ease of use. So I will tell you, I sweat blood over this. I I researched and I researched and I researched and I did demos and I just. I worked so hard to find uh, an accounting software, bookkeeping software uh, that I could build my practice on. Uh, and ultimately for me, it came down to zero um, because I, there are some other options out there. Like I looked at Sage. I know you had used Sage in a, a previous life uh, and really liked it and I don't I, uh, know about it these days I used peach tree loved it back yeah, well, then right. Sage 50 but I don't know now. what it how it is now honestly so well, they have a cloud version now that's sort of like a zero QBO clone that but it has mm -hmm. fewer integrations and I didn't see any real advantage and and basically they were so behind on integrations that I just felt like this this market is going to go Pepsi and Coke. Um, there's just going to be an increasingly so over time, there's going to be the one and the other, it's going to be QBO and it's going to be zero yeah. and zero is the better platform. Um, you know, as I, as I wrote somewhere on Facebook recently, like it is cheaper, it is faster, it is more flexible. Um, and it just, and again, part of QuickBooks and into its whole kind of deal is, as I used to complain very vocally about when I was an IRS agent, is that their whole thing is that they're trying to hide the accounting from you. Yeah. Right. Because accounting is more than you can handle user. Um, and so we're going to put that all inside of a black box. Right. But if you're a professional, that's exactly what you want to see. Right. You mm -hmm. want to see the gears turn. You want to see the actual, you know, what's really in there, what exactly happened. Um, and I just find that much easier to do on zero. And I just find them, I find them a much better company. Um, I appreciate, you know, that they have a local rep who you can talk to. And I have mm -hmm. a regularly scheduled meeting with them every month uh, where we just sort of go over what I'm, what I'm working on and, and, that's awesome. I didn't, I don't meet with mine every month, but is that because you have growth plans or is it because you're submitting feature requests or all of the above? Yeah, no, it's, I, I signed up for a, a, a sort of growth plan and I, I bought a block of, uh, uh, of subscriptions and whatnot. It was all sort of this whole package they put together, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, 
it's it's just I have somewhere the most horrifying transcript of a chat that I had with Intuit to try to get because because what happened was when I started my business I had a Gmail account right. And then I switched over to a, you know, a legit Google account that has my website's uh, domain name on it. But my QBO like master login is still on my old Gmail account. So now if somebody wants to link to me in their QuickBooks, wants to add me as an accountant, I have to give them my janky old Gmail address, mm -hmm. right? Instead of my domain name. Anyway, I was like, uh, this should be fixable, right? It's a three-hour chat that involves, oh my God, it's just, and I believe it's saved on my computer as like QBO is the worst or something. <laughs> it's like the name of the file. Oh, that's hilarious. I know a lot I mean, of people. Not are really, them. but yeah. Yeah. And you know what? There's like a couple features I like about QuickBooks, but all the other things that I love more about Zero just completely outweigh those. So it's like a no-brainer for me. Um but the, I mean, the biggest thing is that like it zero has an audit trail, like a true one. You can't delete things unless they haven't been posted yet. And you can, you can, uh, there's approval levels and controls and stuff in zero that you don't have in, in QuickBooks. And so it's like, yeah. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast recently. I forget which one, but um, they were talking about how in parts of the world where they have like VAT um, and whatever its equivalents are around the world, but including Australia and New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, businesses have to file these tax returns more regularly and it's a much more significant part of their business. Yeah. And so zero coming out of that part of the world, like a, a small business in that part of the world would never not have an accountant help them. Yes. I listened to the same podcast, I think. Was that yeah, the cloud accounting podcast, maybe? Might have been cloud accounting. Um, I, for some reason, I don't think it was, but it's one of the many accounting podcasts I listened to. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. It was, it was a recent one. Yeah. To where they were talking about how um, small businesses get on software much sooner out there than they do here in the US because of that. Well, and that they link with an advisor immediately. Yeah. Yes. And Zero was built for that. Zero was built in the cloud on the assumption that you're going to do your own books, but you're going to have somebody who works with you monthly or quarterly or like, mm -hmm. it's just in D Zero's DNA yes. that it's a collaborative tool between the client and the accountant. Mm -hmm. And QuickBooks is, of course, because it came out in 1992 or whatever, uh, long before the internet, um, it, its DNA heritage is, it's a DIY tool. And I think it kind of always will be. That's just what they're after. And of course you can, but don't get me started on limited numbers of users. <laughs> Sharing that is another it. great, that is another great feature of zero. Like you eliminate that risk by allowing unlimited users. Like there's so many things that zero has enabled me to do with like I allow my clients unlimited transactions and unlimited bank accounts because things are so much easier and efficient inside of zero that an influx of transactions is not going to greatly decrease the profitability on that engagement with them. Whereas on QuickBooks, it would. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I have a, uh, like e-commerce client that 
has just zillions of these little transactions. Um, but they're all from the same like handful of vendors. Uh, and yeah, it's so fun to go in and go into cash coding and they're all already coded because they're from the correct vendors and you just mm -hmm. click one button and it's like, so you have now reconciled 250 transactions. And you're just like, yep. I think I'll take the rest of the afternoon off. <laughs> yes, it's like pure magic. Yeah. Um, so awesome. Good. Okay, well, we are coming up on our time. Do you have any closing thoughts or pieces of advice for bookkeepers um, that you want to share? Anything that we didn't cover? Um, well, the one sort of cluster of topics that we didn't get to touch on it, it was just sort of what not to worry about. Mm, yes, um, let's talk about it. And I don't know if bookkeepers have this as bad as clients do, but I see people really sweating over whether something is supplies or is it office expense or is yes. it posted? Is it cost of goods or is it or is shipping it expense? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Is this a cost of goods freight or is this an expense for delivery? Um, and at least from the IRS's perspective, who cares? Um, yeah. It doesn't really matter. It all deducts the same as I try to assure my clients. Um, and so... I like to say the standard that you're working to, at least for the benefit of the IRS, is not bizarre, right? You don't want to have uh, a tax return that looks just bananas, right? <laughs> that just looks like no other tax return on the planet, right? Because when you get fed into the computer, what they're going to do is they're, they're going to take your industry code and they're going to compare you to all the other businesses that have that same industry code. And if your return looks way different than everybody else's industry in that industry code, they're going to flag you and they're going to, it's going to increase your diff score, which is how they select people for audit uh, by and large. And, mm -hmm. you know, but that's a pretty low standard, right? Not bizarre. Yeah. Like, and so if you allocate some things to, to postage or delivery or subscriptions, uh, you know, don't worry about it too much. I mean, unless you're, unless you're touching meals, right? Meals and entertainment, or I guess it's just meals now because entertainment is out. Um, mm -hmm. Because meals, of course, are limited to 50% usually. Um, but for the most part, like that's a lot of wasted energy to worry about that. You can just yeah. ask your client what they think of it as or whatever. Yep. That's just, what I always default to. Like if we really want to make sure that the client has input, we'll ask them what they prefer to see it as. So it helps them make decisions because but those are already not the same categories that are on the tax return. <laughs> so it's like, it really doesn't matter at that point. Yes. And I guess just in that sort of same vein, the last thing I'll say is that at least when I was there, it was a couple, quite a few years now, more than a couple years uh, now that I have been gone. I guess I left in like 2014, something like that. Anyhow, um, the software that we used, if you tried to put in an adjustment and the, tax difference amounted to less than $200, 
the software would just pop up and say, should we just round that down to zero? <laughs> and you were encouraged. Seriously said that? Well, it didn't say in quite those words. <laughs> it was like, you've put in an adjustment that amounts to less than $200 in tax. Like, do we really want to file paperwork for 150 bucks? And the correct answer is no, you don't, right? Because an audit may take, you know, 50 or 100 hours or something like headphones revenue agents died. are expensive. So in general, if it wasn't worth $1,500, I know they died. Forget about it. It's not worth it. So that's, uh, there we go. and that's $1,500 okay. of tax. So that's like, whatever, $10,000 adjustment or something. So uh, cut yourself a little bit of a slack and, uh, and get your clients to save their receipts. Yep. Awesome. Okay. So now that we've thoroughly helped everybody figure out <laughs> the situation with auditing books and all that good stuff. Um, it was super, super helpful. I think this is a huge question that a lot of people have. Um, do you have, is there a way that if people like, I don't know if you're trying to get people to contact you, but if you want to, if you have a social handle, like a LinkedIn or anything where people can reach out to you, if, if you want, um, or whatever your website, so people can get to know you a little bit better. For sure. Um, I, I'm not very active yet on the social medias. I know that's one thing I have to, to get organized and, and do and, you know, create a business Facebook page and all of that. Haven't quite got there yet. But um, uh, yeah, my website is just CampbellTaxConsulting.com. Um, and I assume I, I've lurked around your Facebook group uh, enough. You don't have too many crazy followers. So I'll go ahead and give you my email address, which is just Andrew at CampbellTaxConsulting.com. Um, and so, yeah, if you, if you have any questions, I, as I said, I do have a seven week old at home. Uh, mm -hmm. so I, I can't guarantee that I'll be real, uh, on top of, of responding, but, um, by all means, if you, if you have a question or. That's uh, okay. And it's great to know of, uh, I've always in search of good, you know, helping people connect with good tax preparers because, um, not everybody should be doing taxes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my uh that's I didn't whole have another episode already i would not be doing it <laughs> it is uh... um but you know if you're if you're open to um taking on new clients and someone has a client that needs taxes uh maybe shoot them over to andrew yeah yeah, yeah. especially if you've got nice tidy books yeah exactly it's, i'm it's sure you don't work with anyone who doesn't work with a bookkeeper right <laughs> mm. <laughs> I know I'm actually currently in the process of working with um, go proposal to like rework some of my pricing. And mm -hmm. yeah, I've been trying to like find a nice way of saying, if your books are garbage, <laughs> like, how do I price that into like my schedule C pricing or my business pricing? Like yeah. various qualities of books. There you go. Yeah. That's a, that it, it's a, that's a big deal. <laughs> Especially in the heat of tax season, boy, when somebody sends you a, you know, messy spreadsheet. Yeah. And it's not even like, you're not even, you don't even have to go and like verify things. But if you open the books and you know that you, by just glancing at them, that they're a disaster, like you can't just ignore that. <laughs> yeah. That's last year I created a little 
template in Excel for clients where I'm just like, if you're, you know, if you're not going to keep books or even if you have been keeping books, but you've been using QuickBooks and it's a mess because I know it is, uh, because QuickBooks is too confusing for the average user. Like, here's a spreadsheet. Just put your stuff in this spreadsheet. It's already formatted. Take your best guess at a category. Leave me a little note. And then I will run a pivot table on it at the end of the year and everything will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it is easier to just get that bank export and recreate, <laughs> reconstruct. All right. Well, thank uh, you, Andrew, so much. It's so I, much harder to screw up. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much again for um, coming on and chatting with us. And um, I'm sure I'll have you back on in the future. Maybe I'll have you do a little guest appearance in my program or something. Well, that would be lovely. This has been very fun. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you and take care. All right. Always a pleasure. Take care. Ambitious.